Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. When you're 17, you're fearless. It never occurs to a 17-year-old that you're going to die someday. So I just went there and figured I would be my best self. May 14th, 1998, the last episode of Seinfeld aired, concluding a run of nine seasons and 180 shows. The fact that it's been more than 20 years since the show stopped might surprise you because, you know, everywhere you look, Seinfeld's on TV. His life in reruns via syndication is amazing. And recently, Netflix announced that starting in 2021, the show will be streaming around the world via Netflix. The show starred in addition to Jerry Seinfeld, Jason Alexander, that was George, of course, Michael Richards, Kramer, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Elaine Bennis, who went on to win eight Emmy Awards after the show. The Seinfeld show itself was created by Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David. Everyone knows all these names, but there was someone else behind the scenes who was there throughout the Seinfeld years. The guy that composed the show's music the theme music, he added accompaniment for each episode, and he had a front row seat throughout the amazing Seinfeld run. That guy's name is Jonathan Wolf, and today on the Sidcast, we get to talk to him. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, Jonathan Wolf is a character, a child protege in music, trained in classical and jazz, working three jobs as a musician and composer while still in high school in Louisville, Kentucky. Jonathan had talent, really extraordinary talent, and an incredible work ethic. My nephew Robbie is fond of reminding me of a bit of advice I shared with him years ago, and it's something I've lived my own life with. Don't let anyone ever outwork you. There'll be smarter people, there'll be faster people, there'll be people even more attractive, and you'll be competing with them over the course of your career, but you can't control that. So why worry about it? What you can control is what you do, your effort, your desire to be constantly learning, your interest and effort to try to get better and better, and that's Jonathan Wolfe. One of the really fun things about this episode is because Jonathan really did have that front row seat during Seinfeld. And by the way, Jonathan Wolf also wrote the music for dozens of other primetime shows, including Will and Grace and many others. Jonathan Wolf, he's got great stories about Jerry, about Larry David, and about lots of things going on behind the scenes. So no more yada yada. It's time to talk with musician and composer Jonathan Wolf. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Jonathan Wolf. Jonathan, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So, Jonathan, you go by the uh, moniker the, the Seinfeld Music Guy. Subtle, right? It's subtle. So, where'd that come from? I was the music composer on every episode of Seinfeld. You did the actual. Like anything we hear in the in terms of the music of the show, you did that. Isn't that neat? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, occasionally we licensed pieces of music for special reasons, for recognition value or whatever. You know, like Elaine danced with the little kicks, and we used Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, the famous dancing. Yes, yeah, things dancing like that. Episode. Occasionally we would go to third parties, but yeah, I was really territorial on this show, and I like to create all the music. You did, and so how'd you get that gig? I mean, that's a pretty big one. My entire career was based on relationships, people who believed in me and had faith in my abilities and confidence in my professionalism. And one of those was my good friend, 
George Wallace, mm-hmm. who's a brilliant comedian. Turns out, in real life, Jerry Seinfeld has a best friend named George. It is George Wallace. And years after I worked with George in Vegas, he was the opening act for a couple acts that I conducted for, Diana Ross and Tom Jones in Vegas. Years later, George recommended me to his friend Jerry Seinfeld, and I got a phone call from Jerry Seinfeld. So Jerry calls you out of the blue. You didn't know it was coming. I did because George asked if he could oh, yeah, give my that. number and out. You were going to say, well, I'm not sure whether. Although Seinfeld, who was Seinfeld? He was a comedian. He was a successful stand-up I, comedian, but no, not, not even. so much. He had, he had had his moment on Carson. He had had an HBO special, okay. but not famous. Yeah, yeah. And the job itself, not a prime assignment because the network had not shown a lot of enthusiasm for this show yet. It was called the Seinfeld Chronicles and the pilot aired did not do so well. And they gave this show an order of four episodes. Four episodes is not really an order. It's an insult (laughs) because usually the initial order is 13 or 22. So this was not a great job assignment. But since it came from my buddy, George Wallace. Right. Sure. Come on over. I'll, I'll help you out. I'll do your music. So how did the conversation go with Jerry? Jerry described to me. What sounded like a sound design issue, not so much a music Mm. problem. The problem was he had had music on the pilot, but it didn't really work that well. Nobody really liked it. And he told me the opening for his show was to be Jerry Seinfeld in a comedy club, standing in front of a crowd. He tells jokes. People laugh. And he wanted theme music to go with that scene. So what I said to him is that sounds like an audio conflict. The nature of theme music in the late 80s was that it was melodic. A lot of silly lyrics and sassy saxophones. And I'm guilty of creating a bunch of that kind of music. But I told Jerry Seinfeld it was not going to work here. I said, how about this, Jerry? We treat your human voice telling jokes as the melody of the Seinfeld theme. Every time you do a different monologue, it'll be like a variation on the theme. My job will be to accompany the monologue in a creative way that's fun and energetic, that percolates underneath and buoys the scene, but does not interfere with the audio of Jerry telling jokes. The organic human nature of your human voice, Jerry, might go well with the organic human nature of my fingers, tongue, lips, like this. And I had his attention. So he came over and I showed him how it would work with his comedy. I used some of the footage from his HBO special. And I noticed that he had kind of a lyrical, musical lilt to his delivery. Mm. And I put a clock on it, about 110. So, okay, that'll be approximately the tempo of the pieces of music that will accompany your monologues. The bass that you may be familiar with for Seinfeld, slap bass had not yet enjoyed celebrity status, 
as a solo instrument at that time. It was still an element in funk music buried in the mix. I brought it forward, put it on the table, did some Frankenstein DNA genetic engineering on it through audio splicing, sample editing, and put it forward as the main musical component of the Seinfeld theme. The bass line itself, the composition of the bass line, so simple, so basic, so sophomoric that it did not require for beats in a bar, did not require meter. It could start and stop and still hold water and still remain the Seinfeld theme. And the reason it had to stop and start was to make allowance for the timings of Jerry's jokes, his punchlines, the audience laughs. Sometimes he would do physical antics while doing his monologue, and I would work around with that, maybe turn it into choreography by putting it to music. And in that way, I could modularly manipulate those components that make up the Seinfeld theme in a Lego style each monologue would have its own bespoke recording of the Seinfeld theme to go with it. But there was a core theme that we all know from listening to the show. So each time with the monologue, you would kind of riff off of that and kind of create something that fit exactly what Jerry was saying. Well said. With the theme as the center. And what did you call it? Slap bass? That was slap bass so is the general where, term. So why did you come up with that? Where did that come from? Did you know well, you Well slap bass is is a technique of playing the bass guitar, most famously pioneered by Larry Graham. Nobody knows where it really started, uh-huh. but it's instead of plucking it with your fingers, mm-hmm. you thump it, you slap it with uh-huh. your thumb. That's what made that little... Different. That's what makes yeah. it really pop, and it, it's not a pretty sound, but we've gotten used to it, and yeah. people have gotten so skilled at using their thumb and their palm and their mm-hmm. fingernails in various slap-based techniques that it has become an art form in itself. Now, why'd you pick it, though? Because no one else had. It was a unique identifiable signature for the show. When I created a theme, and I created 44 of them for primetime network TV series, I like to create a sonic brand. Something that others have not used the same way. I try. You try to let your mind go loose and think of things outside of the box, because if I do my job well, that sonic brand will be like an earworm it will serve as an instantly identifiable signature for the show that people will hear and there'll be a Pavlovian response. Ooh, what's that sound? Yeah. And for Seinfeld, the bass seemed to make sense. It, in a general way, the frequency range of it stayed out of the frequency range of his human voice so that they would not interfere if they overlapped. And most importantly, it was funny. <laughs> yeah. That's and with a PH, by the way. Funny. So when you played that for him, did he like it right away? He did. Yeah. He was all over it. He just said, yeah, man, this is the weirdest. This is music from Mars. <laughs> and he was all over it. He liked it. He was at my studio when I showed it to him. And it, it's really kind of a simple, childlike combination of sounds. It's... You know, nine part sound design and one part 
music. And the nine parts of sound design are whimsical and fun and kooky. And he kind of liked that. So he called Larry David on the phone. Remember, this was before you could FaceTime and have other means of... This is 89. 89. So he just called him on the phone and old school held the phone receiver with a cord attached to to it. Listen to this. He held it up to the speakers in the room and played it for Larry David. And Larry liked it. And that was was done. And that's what you hear on every episode of Seinfeld. Now... The postscript for this is Jerry had a good time doing it, and he wasn't all that busy yet. Mm-hmm. He called me the next day, and he said, that was really fun. Would you mind? And we're, and we're happy. Mm-hmm. We're happy with what we got. Would you mind if we did that again just to try a different take on it? So I rolled my eyes and said, sure, why not? He's a very nice guy, and we got along fine. So we went through this whole process again, an entirely different Seinfeld theme. So what happened to that one? Didn't. It didn't make prime time, literally. It didn't, <laughs> because he liked it, too. And he asked me, what do you think? I went, yeah. I think we were done yesterday. He just wanted to tinker. He wanted to tinker, and that's fine. That was a window into his creative process and for me. what it was like on the show and the comedy and writing side, as you observed? Yeah, the- that writer's room had a lot of experimentation yeah. in that fashion. Where Let's try it this way. What if we completely change this character, this guest cast, and make this guest cast angry all the time? Right. Or and he would do things like that. He's a very creative guy, nice guy who's always polite, respectful, and it furthered the relationship. Another day alone in the studio with him, like I said, my most important asset was relationships. And I figured, well, even if this Seinfeld Chronicles dies tomorrow. This relationship can arc beyond that, and he'll be on another show, and we'll do that. Did that relationship extend to the other performers, or Larry David was really his partner in venture, right? Larry David was his partner, yeah. His partner, yeah. Yeah, Larry and Jerry were a pod. Now, of course, Larry (laughs) has gone on to his own uh, stratosphere with uh, Curb uh, movies, Curb Your Enthusiasm movies and other things like that. So I and many others are big Larry David fans as well. So you have anything you could... Can you throw us a crumb here about Larry? Are you sure? (laughs) We can try it. I'm not speaking out of school here because he now, the world knows, that character on Curb is not a character. That's really him. That's really him. He loves to stir the pot. He is most comfortable when you are not. It's just his nature. It's his nature. He find a way to pick a fight. Just because... Just because that's what he, you know, find because it was funny and because yeah. he could. And he would maybe, he'd, he'd say, oh, there's my phone. And he would take your phone and walk away with your phone. And now you're obligated. Now you're in it. He's yeah. got a hook in your jaw. And you're an amateur because you don't do this all the time, yeah. but he's a pro. Right. So it's your turn. And occasionally it was my turn. It would happen that he would find a way to make trouble with me. Like, for example... There was the Pez Dispenser episode, which, by the way, was a rare special moment with Larry before we shot. I My early training was concert music. So knowing that this scene was coming up, one of my assistants went to the USC Music Library and got a whole box full of solo piano liturgy concert material and i met larry on this the sound stage the studio stage the recording stage 
And he sat on the piano bench with me. And I just played through concert piano pieces one after another. And I played, I don't know, 15, 20 different ones, just reading through them. And he's imagining how it would work with the Pez Spencer scene. He obviously he ended up picking the the Beethoven C minor, which is often called the pathétique. And the reason he picked it was because he recognized that it works in phrases. It is all rubato. You can start and stop it to make room for the antics and the comedy and the Pez dispenser and the laughing. And he kind of liked that. And he liked that it was a little bit dramatic the way it started. And so that was actually a nice moment. Larry is very musical. He loves music and he respects music. So that was a rare, tender moment with Larry sitting on a piano bench and having, watching him think through it. When we actually shot the scene, we're getting, at this point in the show, the Seinfeld scripts were busy affairs, lots of setups. There were maybe 40 different scenes in Seinfeld. You know, they were quick. Mm-hmm. Tom Sharonis, the director, excellent director, by the way, loved working with Tom Sharonis. He was all business, especially on a location shoot like that. You know, we're, it's not our set. Right. So lights and camera and set and all these different departments, carpentry, and I all have work to do, real work to do to get ready for the set. And we maybe we have 20, 30 minutes to get the shot and move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. So you do what you can to be efficient. So audio wanted some levels on the piano just to hear what it would sound like in the room. And so I played some of the piece. Audio said, okay, we got it. And I stopped. Larry David goes, oh, no, I was listening to that. Play some more. And I made the mistake of glancing at Tom Sharonis. Oh, he wasn't <laughs> thrilled about this. Boy, Larry just pounced on it. What are you looking at him for? What are you looking at him for? He works for me. And he went to me, no, 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 play some more. And Sharonis is shaking his head, no, because there are people that have work to do. Right, Larry didn't care. Larry didn't he care. Said, no. He saw an opportunity to make trouble and put me in the yeah. hot seat because now I'm the one yeah. making the noise and people are going to be bugged in me if I keep playing other so that that's just an example of how he could suddenly it's a completely benign situation that Larry could turn into conflict and so when Larry was working on Curb Your Enthusiasm I'm not sure of the years if that was the time that you had already retired or whether you were brought in to talk about it because he knew you as a partner really so all right, here's what happened. I'd worked with Larry on other things, too, in between. Yeah. Okay. He did a terrible movie called Sour Grapes. I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, you're, you're not alone. <laughs> I started receiving materials for Curb Your Enthusiasm. Started getting breakdowns and schedules and crew sheets and things like that. No one had hired me for this job. Larry had not talked to me. And I just ignored it. First of all, it's on cable, and I didn't really do cable. Mm -hmm. The royalties, which was how I mostly earned my money, Mm -hmm. are better on major networks. Mm -hmm. So I favored, I gave priority to the major networks where I could make more money on royalties. So it was not a really great job for me. And I was going to retire in the next couple of years, and... Did I really want to work with Larry again? 
you put yourself in that situation, you deserve what you get. So I ignored it. No one had hired me. I had no obligations here until cuts actually started showing up. Actual three at the time they were three quarter inch videos of of, of his episodes of his scenes from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. So now they were kind of assuming you were the guy. They assume that way. That's what Larry does. And at this point, I've got proprietary materials here that should be only for eyes of people who have signed those documents. So I did what nobody ever wants to do. I called Larry. <laughs> Larry, it's a great show. Boy, you're, you're so funny and you're playing yourself. I, I, this is going to be a really big hit. Listen, I'm retiring. Let me get you a, a music guy who is not retiring to stay with this show for the entirety of the show. What do you say? What? What are you saying, Wolf? What are you saying? What do you mean? You can't be in the gray areas or subtle or polite with Larry because he owns that territory. Yeah. That's his home turf. You got to be clear. So otherwise, whatever your point you're trying to make, you're not going to make it. So I said, I hope this is not offensive to you, Larry, but I'm not the composer on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm never going to write a single note of music for this show. I'm retiring. And if you want music for this show, you're going to have to go elsewhere. That's pretty clear. Pretty clear. What did he say? What? You thought I was going to hire you? <laughs> I wouldn't hire you. You're a hack. <laughs> so he switched it around. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'm glad we agree on that. Yeah. Uh, all these materials you sent me, I'll just put them all in a box and yes. tell the producer to pick them up. Uh, and so, so that and that was my last conversation with, with Larry with David. Larry. Yeah, you have That's a long time ago. Yeah, it? yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I don't think he misses me. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure you've. By the way, none of this is insulting. No, and wouldn't be you to really try hard to insult I Larry David. You could insult yeah. Larry David. Actually. So that gave those couple of examples gave you an insight to yeah. working with Larry David. Who, by the way, I'm going to understate the obvious. Larry is the genius. Behind Seinfeld, clearly. There is no doubt that when he left the show for a couple seasons, yep. they were good shows. Some of, the, some of our finest episodes were during that period, but it was missing the Larry David sparkle. And Curb Your Enthusiasm is so strong that it's clear it was Larry. Yeah, and you've seen Curb, of course. I try and it's like military people have flashbacks from fireworks. Yeah. I try not to watch that. That's very funny. <laughs> uh, well, John, it sounds like everyone calls you Wolf, don't they? That's what Larry called me. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> if Larry's calling you Wolf, maybe I'll call you Wolf. That's fine. If I could get away with that. You're kind of recalling back to the early days in the music and how the music actually stayed, because, of course, NBC was... The suits wanted to have something to do with it, and many people are going to remember one of those first episodes where George and Jerry are going to uh, NBC to pitch their show, and George... Is like really up in arms and crazed about the whole thing. So can you tell us a little bit about that episode, but of course what really happened behind the scenes in terms of the music? Jerry loved the music. Larry loved the music. The network, not so much. I had been given a heads up that if we were going to be picked up for a second season, the network had a few notes for that next season. And the very first item on the list involved the music. So I was invited to the meeting. With the NBC 
yeah. producer types. Warren Littlefield was there. Yeah. He was president at the time. And a wonderful man, by the way. Mm-hmm. I did 17 series under Warren Littlefield. You had done some previous to... Yeah, I was not new to NBC yeah, at that so point. So they knew who you were. You would work with them. Yeah. Not like later. After Seinfeld, I became... Yeah. Kind of the everyone went in their own stratosphere at that point. Yeah, but you were more well known NBC than Jerry and Larry were. Probably, like. yeah, because I'd done a few series for NBC. Yeah. I was not yet Flavor of the Month, but sure. so there was this list. You could see you had a list, and first thing up was let's talk about the music and Warren, who is a a very thoughtful man. He speaks well. He was never rude about it, but he did say the music. What is that? What is that? It doesn't. What is? Is that an instrument? Could we not afford real music? <laughs> it's distracting. It's annoying. Where does this come from? This feedback is this his personal opinion. Probably. There's no data behind. No. Like this. this is you know. This is the network execs. It's what they think. They're yeah. the experts. They've done it before. This is what they think. Yeah, and they're professionals. They know what they're doing. And so he's, he said, "It's distracting. It's annoying." And when he said the word annoying, Larry David, who up to this point is acting really disinterested in the whole affair, his little eyes perk up and goes, hmm, it's annoying? Really? <laughs> it's because he liked that. He likes that. That's the entry to good fight. Yeah. Um, Glenn Padnick, who was head of television for Castle Rock, who was technically my boss and technically Larry's boss, he was there. And I said to Glenn and Larry, look, you see there's other items on this list. Pick your fights. I'll change the music. I'll change it today. Tomorrow we'll have new music. You'll love it. And you can fight these other fights. you got to concede somewhere. Larry kind of got mad. Shocking. Go ahead. <laughs> he says, <laughs> don't you dare. Wolf, don't you dare. You're done here. Get out. You get out. You're done. He didn't want any concession speeches. Oh, man. He thought I was being a traitor by even suggesting. By being reasonable. By by even suggesting that I would change something he had already approved. I said, really, it doesn't. My feelings are not hurt on this. And I knew I had in my pocket that second day of work oh, that Jerry right. and I had done, yeah. we could just swap it out because it was cool, too. So I looked at Glenn, and Glenn just sort of said, you know, hey, my role here is to support you. And Larry, if you feel strongly about it, I'm with you on it. And I left. That was the last I heard about it. And it's obviously, cool. the music stayed the in the music, picture. The so Larry David is the hero of that story. Yeah. Now, the funniest part is the rest of that list, mm-hmm. none of those things changed. None of those things. So Larry probably went after each one of them. Yeah. And so the NBC, so this is very interesting. So how strong was the first season, these four shows? There had to be they, something that they wanted. Well, they were well written. Yeah. It was a really weird duck. And NBC was not sure what to do with it. And the other networks were not sure what to, you know, were just happy it wasn't their problem. Because how do you counter program against something that weird? Because mm-hmm. Seinfeld was a new species mm-hmm. of TV series. It was a show about nothing. It's just interesting how Larry won that battle, those multiple battles. And every time he did, it emboldened him. Yeah. <laughs> he became more and more difficult to approach with notes. So it became his bat and ball. 
the show, which, as we all know, after the fact, it's easy in hindsight to recognize that that's a good thing. Yeah. Because Larry is, he understands comedy. He understands humor. He understands human nature. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. There's so many things that often things happen, and I, and I say to myself, that's a Larry David moment. It's just laughable. I'll give you one little example. I bumped into a friend of mine the other day in the men's room at a movie theater, and I was just walking towards the sink to wash my hands, and he walks in, and he's a big Larry David fan, and so I go and I stretch my hand out to him before I went to the sink. <laughs> and I'm laughing. To my, to You're say, like Poppy. And I could just imagine, like, of course, he wouldn't shake the hand. And then the whole story comes out that, you know, who is this guy? He doesn't shake hands with his friend. And the word comes out. And then, you know, 10 other things start happening. And yeah, we had an episode where Poppy, the restaurant owner, yeah, Poppy. Yeah, yeah. Who's witnessed using the toilet oh, and going goodness. right out the door without yeah. shaking, washing his hands. So there's a whole thing about That's that. Funny. So what about Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who's, you know, done Veep and won many, uh, many Emmys and has become, you know, so uh, successful and famous post-Seinfeld, uh, which was famous then, but it was really Jerry's show. It is just testimony that she is so talented, so smart, so well-trained, and such a hard worker that she her success has endured. Do people see that? Did Jerry it's and Larry just, know, it's, know it's just as simple as that. Yeah. She just is willing. She And she's fearless. She has such courage on camera. She's willing. Whatever is in the script, she will make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it was wrestling on the floor with the guys. Uh, there's this one scene where she and Doug Ballard, Doug's, she wants to get rid of him. And he says, well, I'll wait till tomorrow. I'm going to miss my plane. It's late. And she goes, no, no. And she does this entire shot. It's one shot. I remember this episode. This and she's the guy frantic. She yeah. You have to get out. Yeah, you have to get out. And she's frantic. And she's pulling clothes out of the closet and out of the drawers and throwing them in. She, and hitting her marks and maintaining her lines. And at one point, she accidentally runs off the edge of the set and, <laughs> and returns to the set. Uh, the stalwart cam op recognized it and held for her but that's one continuous shot Mm -hmm. and so go back and watch that at some point and Mm -hmm. see just what a wonderful job she did and the director and that that cam op who has had that cam on her yeah yeah when you're watching a show you don't most people are not thinking about any of that they're just seeing something and they believe it and they find it funny well it adds to the frantic that it's in one shot yeah and just one of many thousands of examples of how talented Julia, and she's sweet. She's always friendly, always nice, always kind. I think I happened to be walking onto stage with her in February of 95 when my beeper, remember beepers, went off. And I mentioned to her, I said, "Eh, about to be a dad. (laughs) And she got so excited. She was just so happy about it because there were not that many Seinfeld babies yet. And this was going to be a baby, a Seinfeld baby. Yeah. And so I said, well, I, I got to go. Tell whoever I told her to tell, please, would you mind telling them I, I had to leave? And she said, well, where are you parked? I went, well, I'm parked. I'm, I've got my bike here. I'll drive. Said, no, let me take you. My, my car's right here. So to the hospital no she took me to my car to your car but that was a very kind thing for her to do just to shave those minutes off she and I did not 
interact a whole lot because she was not a real musical character. There were some wonderful Julia scenes. Himalayan walking shoes. Remind us of that one. She's walking alone on a dark, cold street, bothered by her writer's block because she can't think of what words to put to these shoes in the J. Peterman catalog. And walking along the cold street, she notices all the spooky things about it, all the strange things about the street and how her back aches and her feet are resilient. Thank God I'm wearing my Himalayan walking shoes. And that was how she broke through her Her writer's block. Her writer's block. And for me, I saw that scene. I went, can I treat this cinematically? And I forget who it was I was dealing with. It may have, that may have been Larry Charles. I don't remember. And I treated it like a cinematic, real movie scene. And it worked. In terms of how you... How I scored it. Yeah. Yeah, that's in an episode called The Hot Tub. How did you ever get yourself in a position to do all this? Let's go back to the earlier year as a kid. So you were a musical kid, obviously. Where'd you start? How'd you start learning all this? Well... I tried to build a bicycle for myself, but it crashed into a tree and sank into a puddle. Music it is. <laughs> I was no good at anything else. I was always the music kid. I started very, very young at a prodigy age at the music conservatory at the University of Louisville. And at the time, it was a strict conservatory. Only concert music from long dead composers classical music classical what people call classical yeah. music and the deal was if you took private lessons from a U of L faculty which I did you were eligible to sit in on just audit mm-hmm. classes like if how old were you when this was going on six seven six seven years old and you're sitting in on university classes yeah orchestration harmony theory ear training And I'm just sucking it up. It's amazing. Very young children can learn. Mm. Their brains are just so malleable. Right. And so I had all this exposure to pretty deep thinking at the conservatory in a well-organized fashion so that as I got older and I moved on, I was able to use it in a practical, functional way in my studies. And eventually I learn more. I got a different teacher who took me further, picked up where the conservatory had left off and introduced me to newer music. Uh, Stravinsky, Bartok, Shostakovich, Schoenberg, and all these wonderful artists that I didn't have access to before. And eventually that led up to Copeland and And he he started teaching me about the jazz eras, Basie, Ellington, Strayhorn. And I really, really, really liked it. He gave me writing assignments for those How old are we talking about now? How old were you? From uh, 10 to 12. But you start at five and six years old. At the conservatory. And and taking classes. Mm -hmm. So how does this work when you go to school? Like you went to normal school, right? Yeah, I went to during the day. I was still going to school. And you take classes after school. After school, there was a bus, Mm -hmm. you know, the bus system in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky was totally fine and totally safe. And I would take buses because my folks were both working uh, to wherever I needed to go. 
And in this way, I got excellent training. Eventually, since my teacher had introduced me to jazz and I already had good theory and harmony training, so it was not a big leap for me to get comfortable on those outer branches of harmonic extensions Mm -hmm. involved in jazz orchestration. And I really liked it, and I wanted to play more jazz, perform more jazz. And so he introduced me to a former student of his, Jamie Abersold, who was, at the time, just a local teacher across the river in Indiana. And Jamie became my true mentor. Mm. And in his basement, along with three other guys, I got real-world training, world-class training, because we were his lab rats. Jamie was developing a system of teaching jazz, play-along records and books that went along with them, and he used us as his guinea pigs. How lucky were we to have that experience from this world-class jazz master? Yeah, yeah. And this was also all afternoons, evenings, weekends. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting method of education because, you know, parents are listening. Every parent wants to see their kid be great at whatever it is, not necessarily what you've done, but whatever their field is. So you had interest and you had talent. And you had parents that let you or didn't get in the way of. My parents were busy. They had jobs. I have a younger brother with special needs, so they were kind of focused on him a lot. So you're a pretty independent kid. I was pretty independent. They were just happy that I had something to do that was constructive. Yeah. And in a general way, as parents, we spend a great deal of time and energy warning our kids against the dangers of negative risks. You know the list. Texting while driving and unsafe sex and drugs and alcohol. It's all negative risks because even if you get away with it, even if the risk doesn't bite you and you don't get in trouble, you don't die, there's no real gain from it. So it's a negative risk as opposed to performing arts where you have to take a lot of risks to get better. Mm. It's positive risk. You take some kid who's never been, never sang in public, not even in church, and put that kid in front of an audience in the high school musical. And that kid has to develop character, confidence to do what we want for all of our kids, to find his or her voice. Mm-hmm. Whatever field, whatever area that is. Yeah. Emotionally, physically, yeah. musically, find yeah. your voice. Yeah. And even if it doesn't go well, the confidence gained from the experience lives with that kid forever. Now, all performing arts do this. And I have worked at a high level at many performing arts, ballet, modern dance, theater, opera, concert music, obviously screen. But I don't think any of them do it quite as well as jazz. Why is that? Well, for example, if it's concert music or any of those others Mm. and you're performing, the notes are written. Yes. You try and bring something to the performance, bring your best self to that performance, but the notes are written. Mm -hmm. So you've got that construct to work within. When you're doing jazz, you're making up your part along with other people who are doing the same thing. So it's always a moving platform. The landscape changes all the time. And just like in basketball, you have to make your best play, not necessarily because you have the ball, but because of what other people are doing. And that's true in jazz also. It's also true that by playing basketball with better players, you yourself improve. Same thing is true in jazz. Mm -hmm. So 
my adolescent and teen years spent in that basement with Jamie Abersold, it was constant positive risk. I was always terrified because I was with all these people who were better than me. And the music came by fast and Jamie was intense. He was a wonderful teacher, kind and encouraging and generous, but it was intense. The music was scary. So with that much adrenaline rush going on so much in my life, I had no interest in drugs or alcohol or drag racing or any of these things that the other kids were doing to get in trouble, to get their rush, to exercise that predisposition that teenagers have Mm. for taking risks. So my folks were happy that at least I had that. Now, Jamie Abersold, my teacher, he never preached to us, but he had certain rules for conduct and behavior that he expected us to follow in his basement. There was no swearing. There was obviously no drugs or alcohol. There was no smoking on his property. He expected us to be polite and to every time bring our best game. Now, without preaching about it, every week there would be a stack of records that he would give to me and each of us, all four of us, to study and to transcribe and to emulate and play along with. What does that mean, transcribe? The notes that you hear on the record, you put them on paper. You write the notes. You write the notes of these jazz improvisations because they are never written. They come right out of that jazz artist's head. So a transcription is a good educational tool for both the person doing the transcription and people reading it and listening along. It's really a wonderful tool, and he had us do that a lot. But always in that stack of records was a cautionary tale of some jazz artist whose life ended or career ended too soon because of addiction. And he would just point that out, you know, Bill Evans or Charlie Parker. So between all those things, and my parents knew about this, that Jamie was a clean living guy, they were happy that I spent a lot of time in that basement. What about the writing part? Because I know you spent a lot of time learning to write. Yeah, that continued after I became a Jamie Abersold disciple, I continued writing. Yeah. Uh, there were a number of big bands in Louisville, and I wrote for all of them. And there were a couple of vocal ensembles that I really wanted to write for. I was I would study the Claire Fisher's charts for the high lows and emulate that. So I wrote a lot. I was the musical director for a lot of local theater and opera. I did all the pageants. I conducted all the local TV pageants Again, and you, things like this that. This is still as a I'm teenager. I'm a kid, yeah. Now, once I entered high school, I was working seven days regularly on Sundays. I had three jobs. I had a morning job as the pianist and organist at a gospel church deep in the black part of town. I was the only white person for miles and miles around. But it didn't matter. It was Sunday, and it was a church, and people just kind of loved the scrawny little white kid. Then I had a midday champagne brunch that was a radio show that I was a musical director for. Then I had jazz at the river where I was a side man. A wonderful man named Duke Marsh had hired me to be in his band, which was kind of a, a noble gesture and a bold maneuver to hire a 14-year-old to be in your jazz ensemble on Sunday afternoons at the river. 
Mondays, I was the pianist at a, the off nights at a nice restaurant. And then I got a job. It was in the summer after my ninth grade, a five-nighter at a hotel where I would do six to eight solo in the restaurant playing nice jazzy tinkly piano for people eating. And then nine to one thirty, I had a band that I was a leader of and we played in the lounge. We did covers and jazz and top 40 and funk and pop and rock. We did whatever I felt like. And it was a really good experience. And that continued through high school, working seven days a week and five of those days until one thirty in the morning. Now you kind of building this combustion engine day after day with all kinds of musical influences and not just one type of music, as you said, many genres from classical and, and jazz and write, and composing and performing in different styles. All this is kind of, did you know what you were going to do with all this? No, I had no business plan yet. I just knew that it was what I was good at, what I loved, and I liked the people that I worked with. And I kind of had a circle of folks that I surrounded myself with. For example, the drummer in that band at the hotel was the drummer. Remember, there were four of us in Jamie's basement. Yeah. It was him. Now, he and I had met before that. We had a band when we were nine years old. We hear, we were about the same age. And we've got photos of he and I wearing our little sequin gold vests <laughs> and performing, you know, senior centers. And so these were long-term relationships. And by the way, his name is Mike Hyman, and he was always better than me. He was always just more advanced, which was great for me. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from just playing with him, even as a child. Mm -hmm. And he went on to have a wonderful career in jazz. He was, I moved to L.A. when I was 17, and I'd just gotten there when he was 17 and working with Joe Henderson. Wow. That's a hot seat, being the drummer for Joe. Wow. And I remember they came through town going to see him play at a jazz club and oh, how proud I was of my friend and colleague right. working with Joe Anderson. So, yes, there was a lot of learning. It was a combustion engine that, you know, obviously left little or no time to go to high school. So I did not really attend. I was what you used to call a juvenile delinquent, a truancy issue. But I had a guardian angel the head of music for the school board for the city, mm -hmm. a guy named Corky Rabel, he had a big band for oh, which so he liked all this. For which I wrote charts. Uh, and any time the truancy thing would pop up, he would come and defend me and say, Oh no, he's with me. He's doing independent career study. Independent career study. Interesting. You yeah, he had a letter right? that he would send yeah. that say, no, no, he's good. He's okay. So you end up graduating from high school. Well, sort of, yeah. Sort of, with that help. And, <laughs> and, then you, and then you go to L.A. So, Jonathan, you're on the plane to L.A. The plane lands in, at, at LAX. What happens? I mean, do you remember how you felt at that time? Like what you were seeing, what you were breathing? And When you're 17, you're fearless, it never occurs to a 17-year-old that you're going to die someday. So I just went there and figured I would be my best self. And I had to be because I had no family and no friends in Hollywood, and I'm not pretty. So I had to be good at music, and I had to work yeah. hard. And I started working almost right away because I started meeting people. And every time you meet someone, you exchange numbers. And uh, so I started working, doing anything I could. I 
played at rich people parties and society events. And I started working as a studio musician, playing on sessions, doing dates. I did anything that people asked me to do. The studios were happy to have acquired a new Swiss Army multipurpose utility tool for their musical chores. Because you've done so many different things in your very young training that almost anything they'd ask you to do, say, yeah, I could. I I was a musical handyman, and I thought it was great because most of my income, most of my work was very quickly doing studio work. My sight reading, I could sight read anything. So, and I could write quickly. I was nimble in music. So they were happy to have a guy that they could send into any situation. I would say, yes, uh, an actor needs to learn how to play the fiddle for a role. Yeah, I'll do that. Or teach someone to sing or go and accompany someone. I could do that and music supervise what was going on the set. I could. I was also working as a recording engineer at night, working on my union cards. Mm-hmm. One thing we've seen already is you're not afraid to work hard, and you're not afraid to take on whatever job there is to take on. Yeah, that was kind of my motto. If a job needs doing, I'll do it. And by the way, both of those are really interesting lessons. You know, working hard sounds like it's obvious. Not everybody works hard. Not everybody's willing to work day and night if they need to work. And then taking on any opportunity that comes your way when you're still kind of getting your chops and getting the connections and learning, you know, you can't be a prima donna. Yeah. As there's a, Ashton Kutcher actually did a little presentation once where he said, success to me looks like a lot of hard work. Yeah. That's what success means to me. And that resonates with me. Now he had the advantage of being pretty. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not. So I had to work even harder. That's the hard work is yeah. what work. Now for 10 years, I did this. Every time the phone rang, the phone dictated to me where to go and what to do. So I had no control Mm -hmm. over this career. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, I had no idea long-term where it was headed. Mm -hmm. So after about 10 years of this, so I'm now 27, 28 years old, I decided that I needed to take more control. And I had had a taste of being a composer. In 1982, I was the composer for a TV series called Square Pegs. And after that, I did a couple other shows. Just a little teaser of what it's like to be a composer. Mm -hmm. And I liked it. So in 1986, I sold everything I owned and bought a building in Burbank, California, with all the money I had earned over those last 10 years. Everything I possessed went into that building in Burbank, California, on Burbank Boulevard, right in the heart of Studio District. What I really wanted was a job where people would hire me to create music in a beautiful space using the most progressive, bleeding-edge technology and L.A.'s finest studio musicians and singers. But since that job was not within my sights, I created it for myself in that building. And then I sent letters with stamps and envelopes to each of these people who had been so kind and generous and supportive to me for the last 10 years, who had hired me to do their musical chores and entrusted me with those assignments. And I wrote to them and said, thank you. Now stop that. I'm no longer available for those assignments. I am a composer. I've started a company. Let's do business. And I held my breath. Mm. I may have just nuked 
all my connections. Last 10 years of my life, scorched earth. But that's not what happened. All over Hollywood, people said, gee, that's too bad. He was a good utility guy. And they started hiring me to write the songs for their movies, to create themes for their shows, to do special dance numbers for their programs. And I got a couple of series in that way, terrible series, awful series that died instantly and didn't matter because it was a start. I had a business plan. I knew what I wanted and I was working it out. And eventually all those loser shows that I was doing, the ones that died instantly, my win-loss ratio improved. And I became a popular composer for the next 10 years. And you took, I mean, it's quite a chance. You, it was you, a leap of faith, yes. Yeah. I exposed myself to some risk there. Yeah. But you know about risk and reward. And it's during that time that you started taking on a bunch of shows that have become, you know, winning Emmys and primetime shows and others. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so at that point, you're probably one of the top composers, maybe the top, I don't know, in the TV. Yeah, just to clarify, I was not the best composer in L.A. I was probably the best closer. I could get those jobs. But when you say top composer, if you mean busiest, yes. Yeah. There's so many talented composers in L.A. Instead of someone that you're implying is more talented. I was good at closing the deal. You would just get the job done. I would get the job done, and I could, if I got as close to the decider as I am with you right now, Sid, you just hired me for that job. Yeah. That was a skill that I acquired and worked on and developed and cultivated. Yeah. And a lot of composers just have not done that yet. So that is how I was able to get so many of these assignments. Now, you know, obviously I have musical superpowers. They all have musical superpowers, but I did not want to have to every day compete with this list of all-stars just simply based on our musical superpowers. I had to find ways to get out of that pile and get those jobs based on other factors. For example, composers all had demos. You know, examples, reels yeah. of your best work, mm-hmm. snippets of your show, highlighting what your best work is. But people don't hire demos. People hire people. And I made sure that I was a people that people wanted to work with. In fact, at a certain point, I recognized that that was a pile. You go into these offices and you'd see piles and piles of demos. I got to get out of that pile. And I just said, no more demos. I don't have a demo. And when people say, send me, you know, when you're trying to sell a deal and you're on the phone, you want that conversation to continue until you close the deal. You don't want a dead end to come up and end the conversation. And a, a very frequent dead end and that conversation ender is when the producer says, well, send me your demo. Because then what do you say? Okay, it's in the mail. I would at that point say, don't have a demo. Here's why. I have a couple shows on the air right now. Here's where they are. Any episode of any TV show I've ever worked on is an example of my best work. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to do that for you. And that was much more impressive than the demo. I mean, if you have a demo, I mean, you can have a, anyone can have a demo, I suppose, but you yeah. had the shows. <laughs> yeah, and in that moment, Sid... Again, it's shallow and plastic and artificial, but I had separated myself from the pile of demos. Mm-hmm. I, it was either them or me, and I like those odds better than just being one of the pile. Yeah. So I would always constantly be looking for a way to get out of the pile. It's interesting. I mean, that's not the typical thing that an artist or a scientist or a technical expert thinks about. 
that's unusual. I mean, I think of analogy in lots of different ways. There's a lot of scientists. So you're not a scientist, but you're a technical expert of a certain type, an artist. And there are a lot of people that have scientific skills. They don't communicate them very well. And nobody really knows. Nobody understands what they could do. Now, you were in the popular culture, so it was a little bit easier. But still, as you just described, you had to develop those relationship skills and relationships selling skills. were my most important asset and an understanding that for these producers, sometimes they've been working on this show for five or more years before it ever becomes an actual pilot. I have to understand how important it is to that completely. They've had, this producer's had this project going longer than mm. he or she has had their kids. Mm. And they've put so much love into it. And up to this point, where it needs music, that producer has had absolute control over every aspect of it. Could write the words on the script, could choose the location and the wardrobe and the sets and everything about it, the mm -hmm. camera angles, the editing, everything about it is right. controlled by this producer until now. Now this, it's like a child, like a baby, needs an operation. It needs music. Yeah. And it's very scary sometimes for these producers to let go of this baby and hand it over to a composer to perform this operation that's necessary and have confidence and faith that they're going to get their baby back whole. Yeah. And if I kept that in my brain at all times when dealing with them, it helped strengthen the relationship and put them at ease and have, they would have more confidence in me that I had buy-in, that I actually understood how important this is. Right, right. And a lot of my colleagues, and in this case, my competition, did not really give that enough gravitas. They didn't, they didn't care about it all that much. Well, people care. They're not composers in general or caring people. Yeah. But uh, that after, they care a lot about the art and the, maybe the show and the emotions and mm -hmm. the underscore. But I would care about the person who created it. Yeah. What's, learn what their personal musical tastes are. That's called empathy. Yeah, empathy. Yeah, that, I would try and do that. And for me, that established relationships where eventually we would get to the point where I had a number of producers who would call me. They're busy. They're putting together crew lists. They're trying to get their offices going and schedules and book with agents and things. And they would just call me and say, Wolf, we got a new show. Glad to have you aboard. You know what to do. Mm -hmm. Hang up the phone. Lovely. They trust me mm -hmm. to do my very best work. I'm going to step up to the plate and swing hard at that ball. I always do. And especially because what that means is I'm not getting instruction from them. They're not telling me, mm -hmm. this is what I envision for the music, or this is what I want to accomplish from the music. They wouldn't tell you that. Well, producer that has experience with me, and confidence in my abilities knows that they're going to get my very best effort by just letting me do it. Because now it's on me. If it fails, it's all on me. And I want to make sure that, boy, I hit that ball so hard, it completely clears the bleachers. The producer that describes and spends a lot of time talking to you, they don't have a lot of confidence. Yeah, a lot, it's mostly younger, inexperienced producers who would, you know, anytime. And it's part of my job as the composer to... Mm -hmm steer and shepherd the conversation to avoid a sentence that starts with, oh, the music should sound like, because it doesn't matter what words follow next. Mm -hmm. It's derivative music. Mm -hmm. 
you're doing whatever it sounds like. And if they can describe it by describing other music, I'm just connecting dots and you don't really need me for that. I'll take the job. Sure, I'll connect the dots. I did a lot of derivative music because that was my instruction. But if I've done my job correctly, Mm -hmm. I will get from the producer, how does it function? Do you want it to accomplish something? For example, with Jerry Seinfeld, it functioned as an accompaniment to his. Right. He never told me the music should sound like because it would have sounded like derivative music and wouldn't yeah. be a new species like Seinfeld is. So sometimes it needs to accomplish the geography. It's in the Louisiana swamps or period. Mm-hmm. It's historically it's in the 70s or a particular demo. You want to hit a particular age mm-hmm. or, you know, it's kind of. Sound like Arizona. You get the idea. And those are good instructions. I was once in a meeting with, and here's this guy again, same guy, Tom Charonis is later. And there were a bunch of young, new producers on this show. And there's a couch full of a committee. Love the committees. And they're all saying, oh, it should sound like this. You know that song? You know the guitar sound on this song? And Sharonis is keeping really silent. He's just playing with his pipe. You know, at some point he, he, he sees I'm in trouble, speaks up. Excuse me. <clears throat> and the room goes silent because the grand. Yeah, he's the guy. Yeah, the Yoda speaks up. He goes, you don't hire a dog and then tell it how to bark. And he goes back to his pipe. <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> and, they, and they got it these and are smart people they yeah. said okay let's back up the big guy said it yeah. also, didn't Wolf what are, you, what are you thinking I said I've got plenty I've got kind of a general idea about your musical sensibilities mm-hmm. now let me go bark so that's it's very interesting so what you're describing is how producers slash designers slash professionals in certain fields should work with creative talent yeah, it's a model of how to work with creative talent. When you got the right creative talent, Listen, if you have confidence in their talent, well, yeah, you shouldn't hire them unless you have that confidence. Well, often you hire them because it's your cousin. Well, that's <laughs> there's a lot story. of that that's going another, on. That's another story. Yeah, I mean, I'm in a very, very different field, but I speak and give seminars and speeches all the time, and sometimes you get people saying, "Well, can you do this and this?" and I don't do anything they tell me, but I must try to make them feel good about that, which sounds like something you have a skill at as well. You've seen me present. And part of it is, you know, I try to avoid the natural resentment to say, you know, I know that this is going to be great. I've done it a thousand times. I know. And I wish they just would leave me alone, but I'm going to make them feel good about that. And so, still you get that, Sid? Uh, really? I, I got it just a couple of weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. A guy with your credential and, expo- and it's experience. It's really kind of, kind of amazing. And yeah, part of my personality, I don't kind of, I won't accept the job if it's going to be a micromanagement job, but they are, they just want to feel good. And the other thing is the people that hire you, sometimes they come from fields where they're really afraid. They don't know. They can't do it. They're, uh, I don't know if that's exactly the case for you in, in the creative arts. But. Yeah, squared. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, they're afraid. They don't want, they don't want to screw up because it's on them if it doesn't work. And so they think by being more hands-on and micromanaging, they're going to be able to, they're going to feel better about it. But it's exactly the opposite thing they should do. Yeah, going back to, it's my job, or in the case of this story, it's your job, to make sure they are confident, that they know that you are going to do a good job for them. Back to the baseball thing, you're going to hit the ball hard. Yeah. And then they can relax and not feel the need to micromanage you and tell you what to do. Yeah, I might actually borrow 
Yeah, the dog bark. Uh, well, that one is really laying it out there. <laughs> uh, but the baseball one, you know, the one thing you can be sure of, I, when I come up to bat, I'm going to swing for the fences, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to hit it out of the park. And you have and you have history of it. And that's right. That's why they brought you in. So we're just about out of time. I think we're going to have to find another hour with you another time down, sure. down the line. But a couple of final questions for you. I like to ask uh, both of these to all my all my guests. One is more well, you'll see. One is advice, and if you can, uh, and you had a very interesting youth as you described it. But if you can go back to when you were twenty years old, and you could kind of sidle up next to the twenty-year-old John Wolf, what bit of advice would you give him yourself? You know, given everything you've done now and what you know now about anything, about the business, about life, about whatever. Advice to yourself at the age of if you can go back and talk to your 20-year-old self. I would suggest to that 20-year-old, you need a business plan. You have no idea where you're going with all of this work. It's mm-hmm. great you're making all this money and so busy and doing music, mm-hmm. but you need a business plan. It's got to be concise. It's got to be clear. It's got to have a goal. It's got to be practical and sustainable. And most importantly, your business plan has to be in writing, 20-year-old self Write it down, share it with somebody, and commit to it so that when you look at that goal every day on a piece of paper, it's in physical form where you see it every day on your bathroom mirror, you can make your choices that guide you towards that goal and avoid choices that don't. And in that way, 20-year-old self, you'll know where you're going and how to get there. You could be a business school professor with that, uh, with yeah, that, with that advice. Little pearl. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's it. That's all I got. Doc. So it'd be a very yeah, short course. I won't ask you anything else about that. The last question is about, you know, I ask people about their partners, their spouses, wives, husbands, because mm-hmm. everyone always wants to know, how'd you meet? You know, what happened? So what's your story? After I moved to L.A., yeah. a few years later, my cousin moved to L.A. Mm-hmm. And I would get together whenever we could. It's a love thing. And she knew that I was never going to meet a girl on my own because I'm just too darn busy and I'm not really that good of a catch because I work so many hours. But she had this friend named Steffi who was at her house on my birthday. And, of course, she called me to wish me a happy day and hung up the phone and mentioned to her friend Steffi, boy, Steffi, it's too bad you're leaving town. They're also saying goodbye about that. You might like my cousin. And Stephanie said, call him back. Call him back. Call him back. So she called me back and said, look, I have this friend named Stephanie. You want to meet her? And I went, sure. Sure. A real girl? Yeah. (laughs) Because I I was so clueless. I had no idea how to meet a girl. I knew how to close a deal, but I did not know how to meet a girl. So the next day, I had already planned to go over and help with their kids. They had twin babies. Your cousin did. My cousin. And so I would go over and wrangle the baby so they could go out for a cup of coffee or take a walk or something. So I said, I met her on the phone, Steffi, and I said, can you meet me back there at Cousin Kim's house? And while I'm wrangling babies, we can visit. And she did. It was the day after my birthday. So this was October 24th, 1992. And we were married December 24th, 1992. And still married. Still married, yeah. What I say about closing a deal? <laughs> <laughs> when you know, you know. Yeah, when you know. Yeah, because I can close a deal. <laughs> and I did. So eight weeks later, we were married. 
and we have way too many kids and it's wonderful and she's awesome. That's a fantastic story. You are the ultimate closer. Yeah, no. The most important things in life. Yeah, I had to just explain it to her. There's things I got to do and it takes a lot of hours in the day. You can come to my office and hang out all you want, but I'm at my office a lot creating all this music for TV shows. But at some point, and we can pick the date, and you can pick the place, I'm going to retire. How about that? And that closed the deal. Yeah. We had, in a general way, said, well, when I'm 45, we were off by one year. Mm -hmm. Because then we had twins, and where that date was on the calendar was like a little mushroom cloud in a blast crater with more kids coming. And and she picked the place. She did. She picked Louisville, Kentucky, where I was raised, because it's a lovely town and a wonderful place to retire to. It's a great lifestyle. It's quiet. It's an easy pace. And every time we went to visit there for a family event, we just felt good there. So every time we checked out another town, we'd always compare it mm-hmm. to Louisville. We'd say, oh, this town's a nice town, but oh, Louisville has such beautiful parks. And this is a nice town, but there's no real airport there. Louisville has a good airport. It went like that over and over again until finally it was, well, what are we doing? Let's just move to Louisville. And if we don't like it, if it's too much family togetherness, we'll do this again. We'll move again. We're still there, obviously. And still there. We're, we're not leaving. We love it there. You're still there. Jonathan Wolf, thank you so much for spending the time and chatting with us on the Sidcast. Great conversation. And I know there's plenty more we could talk about. You'll hear from me again for round two in another year. Thank Jonathan you. Jonathan Wolf, thank, thank you. Thank you, Sid. Thanks for listening to the Sidcast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.